start off with, I was very anxious and like scared about the future. Um, and then once sort of that seemed like, oh, we're going to be all okay, at least, you know, for the time being, I kind of sort of took this as a time to like take some time off and, um, and just like take a rest really, emotionally and physically. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. During the series, we've heard of the traumatic impact the pandemic has had on the industry. We've also heard of the resilience of those working in the industry and their ability to adapt and evolve. There are also some who have found the seismic shift in their lives has resulted in real positives on their lives. Maria Cabal is the head chef of Tokar Estate in Coldstream, Victoria. Maria, how are you going? Yeah, good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. What's the state of play at the moment for you? Victoria still hasn't opened up in the CBD. The regional restaurants are allowed to open up. Um, what's the situation that you're in right now? So we are looking at opening um, around just after the 20th. I can't remember, was it 22nd and 23rd? Because um, we have a fair bit of an outdoor area. So we're we can still sit like 20, 30 people. Um, so we, our plan is to open around that time, uh, whether that's like, you know, a week's variance or not. We'll see because it's been very sort of, you know, up and down. We've been promised that, oh, you can open and then you can't, and then you can't do this and you can't do that. So we're very like um, cautious, but still preparing to, to open at least for the outdoor dining um, in a few weeks' time. With the restrictions that there are, how many people are you able to do in a seating? Um, look, I think if it's outdoor only, it probably will be around 20. Normally we can do um, around 40 people on the deck, but yeah, probably that will be halved. Um, and indoors, when we can, it will be probably around 15, 20 as well. Um, and just, yeah, we'll, we'll go from there. What's it been like in Coldstream? You've had uh, two lockdowns. And, um, what, what's some of the things that you had to do in regards to getting your income in? So um, obviously we had to, you know, close down pretty, pretty quickly. Um, so, yeah, we've been working on um, developing our sort of um, take-home meal boxes offering. Uh, and we're going to build from that. So in the beginning, we were quite unsure whether people were going to go for it because, like, it seemed like the market was, you know, saturated with everyone trying to survive and trying to make money any way they can. So in the beginning, we're just, yeah, we we're a little bit, like, scared it's not going to work out. But in the end now, we've built, like, a really good, like, loyal customer base around this area. And, like, pr probably, like, a lot, like, I would say 50% of our customers now are, like, repeat customers, people that have ordered every fortnight. Um, so, yeah, we're just doing sort of like take-home meal boxes. That's like four meals for, you know, a certain amount of money or whatever. And then there's like that you can get twos, you can get singles or or family packs. Um, and, um, yeah, we're just trying to make it, you know, as affordable as possible, but as nice using, you know, as nice ingredients as we were able to get. Can you tell us what sort of food you were doing at Tokar before the pandemic? and did you have to change that for a takeaway model? Oh, we definitely had to change it for the takeaway model, yes. It just wouldn't travel and wouldn't, 
it would be hard to sell. So my sort of background is I get really excited about cooking with like secondary and tertiary cuts of meat and I love a lot of offal and I've always sort of um, made it my mission to make people appreciate it more um, and like, you know, um, cook it in a way that that people are not shocked or terrified or or scared of like, oh, this is awful, you know. Uh, it's always been my sort of, my niche. But um, unfortunately, I don't think I'd be able to sell tongue or sweetbreads or bone marrow for, for you know, people trying to, to survive in this era, in, in era. So what sort of uh, meals did you do? What's been really successful? Um, chicken and beef always goes down a treat. <laughs> <laughs> um, we try to do, you know, like, um, keep it keep it varied just so we don't get bored ourselves as well. Um, but yeah, look, always when there's there's a beef or a, we've done a few like sort of steak meals. That's always been number one in the in the popularity list. Um, we do a few like soups as well that people people um, have been like surprised about how much they enjoy having soup. <laughs> but it always comes with something like on the side like a like a cheesy toast or like, you know, some t- nice smoked tomato soup with a, a cheesy toasty or something. It's sort of like is more sellable. A lot of people have talked about the impact of the bushfires before the pandemic and, and also the challenges that the industry had even before this time. Um, what's the last sort of year or so been like for you? Um, yeah, look, definitely very challenging in, in many ways. Um, I started uh, as head chef at Toka probably around this time last year. I was the end of September and it was sort of a complete, you know, takeover. I think the the old team com- was completely switched. They, um, the owners decided to do a bit of like a, an update of the dining room. So they spent a fair bit of money in renovations. And when I started here, I pretty much had like no team apart from a kitchen hand that I um, upgraded to an apprentice and then, uh, <laughs> you know, it completely had to hire a new team that can be great, but it can also be very challenging because it's hard to find um, chefs in this area, to be honest. And people don't really want to commute in from the city like I do and like my sous chef now does. Um, and then, you know, try, we're hoping to get a really nice, like a really good, um, summer season, they're always, you know, fully packed. And with bushfires, that didn't happen. The valley was, like, constantly smoky and people didn't want to leave their houses. And it was, yeah, we didn't make the money that we were expecting to make. And then, um, you know, a few months later, it was COVID. Actually, I had a really bad car accident about two weeks before we had to close the restaurant down. Um, so, yeah, it was, it's been, it's been a, a year what, what did it feel like at that time? You had you had a car accident and a pandemic happened. How, how are you feeling in, in that period? Um, look, for me, it was in a way sort of like um, a welcomed um, rest time that I probably wouldn't have been able to take. Um, and to be honest, in the beginning with all of this happening as well, like I was, to first off, to start off with, I was very anxious and like scared about the future. But as it, you know, our sort of owners were like very reassured, reassuring and saying like, you know, we'll try, try and take care of as much of the staff as we can as we possibly are able to and, and try to take some of that like anxiety and stress away from us. Um, and then once sort of 
that seemed like, oh, we're going to be all okay, at least, you know, for the time being. I kind of sort of took this as a time to, like, take some time off and, um, and just, like, take a rest, really, emotionally and physically. You don't normally get that uh, working in the hospitality sector, and certainly people through this series have talked about the energy and the drive in the industry and you don't really have time for a breath. So what has it been like having so much time on your hands and, and what impact has it had on you? I think um, the first the first time around when we were in lockdown, I sort of, I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, be real productive and do all, you know, do all the things I, I normally don't have time to do and like exercise lots and whatever. But I <clears throat> instead ended up drinking way too much and not doing anything <laughs> uh, and like now this time around I'm actually you know a bit more like you know I don't need to get drink three bottles of wine by myself every night um, I've actually just just made, you know tried to stop drinking altogether for a while um, and now I am actually taking on you know projects of doing all the stuff that I actually normally wouldn't have time to do in the kitchen because you know often you are short-staffed and like my my HF position is very much involved. Like I am in the kitchen all the time, um, doing service with everyone. So having that time to like, you know, try out things that you've you've always wanted to do, I've done that in the second lockdown. You know, I've gotten really into making koji and like stuff from it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You briefly mentioned uh, your fascination with offal, and you've certainly been making a name for yourself doing that. What, what is the secret to cooking offal and why do you have that fascination? Um, for me, I think I have that fascination because it's what I grew up with. Um, like we weren't like a very, you know, affluent family. So my parents would always try and find different ways to to cook nice meals, but also that were exciting because they're pretty avid cooks themselves. So, yeah, you know, I grew up eating my mum's specialties, like roasted pig's tails, for example, and my dad would always make his own pate at home and, um, you know, lots of Estonian traditional dishes are stuff that's made from offal. Um, and I think if you sort of apply more like modern cooking techniques and maybe like more modern um, like flavor combinations, you make it sort of like, you know, put a, put a bow on it, basically. I think people would be more inclined to to try but it's hard it's a hard sell sometimes because everybody's got some idea of um you know oh you know just like imagining awful it being boiled for a long time with no you know no seasoning no dressing it's just like a big you know tongue or something in your in your imagination but it doesn't have to be that way well in that sort of realm of secondary cuts and awful what, what are some of the things your favorite things to cook and and how do you how do you do them um, I really love bone marrow, but I mean, that's pretty like a, I don't know if it, I don't know if it is an acquired taste anymore. You see it in menus everywhere, but, um, you know, just put it on some, put anything on toast that always works. Um, I find, um, I've done like a duck heart, um, or like a duck liver pate with duck hearts, but just on like a, again, fried cinnamon toast and people like love that. Just anything with bread, I think is something um that is pretty pretty appealing to most people um uh, i mean just like cooking something for a long time and then just sort of maybe turning into a sauce or tongue is a really easy one that you can you know brine and 
and then cook and then slice really thinly. And that's like, comes up really beautiful on a skewer grilled with like a, you know, I don't know, wild garlic dressing because now it's in season and whatever, you know. You briefly mentioned that you grew up in Estonia, but we don't really see much of the food from Estonia in Australia. Can you paint a picture for us of um, some of the sort of classic dishes that you grew up with? So I would say normally like the the cuisine is like um, probably a mixture of everyone that's ever occupied us in, in the in in all history basically it's either a mixture of russian german polish um some scandinavian influences as well uh, but there'll be a lot of potatoes um a lot of preserving smoking drying of fish and meat a lot of pork um so let's say one of like my favorite things and this is i think most estonian like traditional dishes are something you either have at a wedding or a funeral um, <laughs> because everything in in between is just really like everyday peasant food, like something it's not even worth mentioning and never made it to the history books, you know. Um, but one of my favorite dishes is something similar to like a kind of like a meat jelly and you have it with horseradish. So it's basically just like all the bits of the pork um, you know, the feet, the head, the tails and everything boils down for a long period of time with some, some veggies. And then you pick all the meat and the reduced stock just goes on top. And then just like it's set in these little molds and you um, you pop it out and you have it with, um, with horseradish. That sounds amazing. Oh, it's so good. Kind of for people who don't or haven't had anything before, um, a bit like cat food, but... <laughs> <laughs> But we love it. You were selling it really well until that moment. Yeah, no, <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> well, has that influence, does that get on the menus uh, on, in, here in Australia? I know that you were with Anada before Toka Estate. Uh, have you snuck sort of Estonian techniques and some stuff from your heritage onto your menus? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think we did a dish at... Anyada that actually was sold surprisingly well. Uh, it was just like a pork belly, like a roast pork belly with um, like a blood blood cake, blood pudding cake, and and blood sauce as well. And because obviously you can't really get cranberries or lingonberries here, which are um, very traditional to have blood pudding with in Estonia, I think I used rye berries. So like an Australian native, but similar flavor profile. At the top of the show, you mentioned that. You're going to be opening around the 22nd of this month. Uh, will the offering change, do you think, because of these circumstances? What, what are the plans for the restaurant? Um, so I think the plan is to try and keep on going with our secondary offering, having the, the reader's pantry meals um, still running in the background. To have, like, I think the main thing is we're trying to make sure we have several streams of income. Um, so if some one fails or something is not that great, at least money is always coming in. Uh, for the restaurant, I think we are going to be running a limited menu and uh, most probably even uh, a set menu with with options. Um, and also, like you know, I have to think about whether sharing because like our sort of ethos has always been you know sharing food and people um, ordering you know different starters 
just to have like in the middle of a table and everything, everyone can try some, whether that's something we can continue encouraging at this time, you know? There's been a lot of uh, disappointment and anger and frustration and worry in the Melbourne ind industry um, because of the second lockdown. H how, how are you feeling about it all and the future of the, the Victorian hospitality sector, given what it's just been through? Look, um, I come from a perspective that I've been extremely fortunate during this time. I've been employed by the same business throughout this whole time. They've supported me 100%. Um, I have had pretty much make no uh, you know, changes to my life apart from the fact that I can't leave my house. <laughs> um, but um, I haven't, I think in a way maybe, you know, the future is we need a bit of a shake-up and maybe, you know, we'll, we'll be hopefully be a phoenix that rises from the ashes and make something new, a new normal and new rules. And, you know, people have had different... Um, issues with the industry for a long time and I think maybe maybe this is a chance for us to reset um, so we'll see we'll see what happens you mentioned that it's been a real blessing in regards to allowing you some space and some time to relax and and recoup um, will this experience change you moving forward and the way you operate as a chef I think so I think um, and this has been coming from me for a while to acknowledge that everyone is allowed to have a life outside of work and if anything it's important that they do have that um, allowing myself and my staff to you know occasionally do take a weekend day off or a weekend off or something obviously that's not the nature of our business and it naturally cannot happen all the time but it is important to allow for those things to happen and make sure that that your worth and you know your own worth and your own life isn't just tied to your success your success at work and and everything that happens here. You mentioned that uh, when you were young, you enjoyed your mum's uh, pigs roasted pigs tails and your dad's pate. What what led you to become a chef? What was the inspiration there, and, and how did you get into the industry? Um, I think. I was sort of like quite lost as a as a young person and I was just looking for maybe some, some structure and some, some sort of like discipline. Um, and I also really enjoyed cooking because that was something that as a family was one of the only things that we really did together. Like I, I grew, even though I love my parents and they're wonderful, you know, they're they can be a little bit absent sometimes. Like, so, you know, the type of people that just come home, switch on the TV and just like focus on it as zombies for hours and that's their life on repeat. You know, the, the, the only thing that we did end up doing together was was cooking and that's the only time everyone is in the kitchen all the time and talking to each other. And, and that, I, I had like sort of really fond memories and strong connection to food from that. And I think I was just like looking to really, to be honest, get out of Estonia um, as far as I possibly could. <laughs> so I was just looking at what the options were at all. I had no idea um, what I wanted to do. And I was like, oh, culinary arts. And that seemed cool. And I was like, I could do that. Um, didn't know how unprepared I was for this at all. But um, eventually, I think I did 
get what I needed from it as a person as well. Um, and yeah, I think it, it helped me grow tremendously. And, and what led you to Melbourne? Um, so funny enough, when I was finishing high school, it was sort of like a bit of a, uh, a mass migration of um, high, like people who are finishing high school that were coming to Australia to do their gap year. Um, uh, what is it? The working holiday or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to Australia. And then um, moved to, <laughs> did, did a bit of traveling, went to, lived in Barcelona for a bit, lived in London for four years. And uh, my friend at the time was living in New Zealand. And, you know, I think she was like, oh, I'm a bit over Wellington. And I was like, oh, I'm a bit over London. You know, need to do something else or go somewhere else. And she's like, why don't we move to, to Melbourne? It's the food capital of the world, you know, like everybody is like talking about it and you sh it'd be so great for you. And I was like, sure, maybe I'll come for six months. And after six months, I realized I'm nowhere ready to leave yet. And six <laughs> years later, here I am. Well, you are heading towards opening. It's only a couple of weeks away. How has it felt um, trying to pull the team back together and and having that sort of end goal of being able to open the doors again and welcome guests in? Um, so... I'm not going to lie, I'm a little bit anxious <laughs> just because I'm not sure what the new normal is going to look for us. I'm not sure how, um, how you know, we can structure menus that, that makes us happy and keeps us excited, but that will sell and, you know, um, that are still interesting I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, how busy we are or how busy we're going to be. I'm hoping that we'll be full, but you never know. Um, and I'm, I'm a little bit anxious and I'm getting the, well, the, when, we, um, when we decided to close, unfortunately, um, most of our casuals were let go. Um, and there was a lot of casuals in the kitchen at the time. Um, so for us at the moment, it's just myself and my sous chef, who is luckily does, you know, the work of three people. So that's always good, but it shouldn't be like that all the time. Um, so, yeah, we are hiring front and back of house. Well, as we move forward and the restaurant is full again and uh, there's, you've got all of your kitchen staff back, what are, you, what are you most looking forward to sort of beyond this sort of period? I think I'm looking forward to that feeling when you kind of feel a bit, you know, when you've started a new job and you feel a bit settled, like you've got all the systems are in place, everything is working, people know exactly what they're doing, the customers are happy, you have like, you know, few few complaints maybe here and there, but they're manageable, no, you know, that sort of feeling when you've really settled, you, the first feeling you get when you've settled into a new job, because I haven't had that yet. <laughs> And how, how are you going to celebrate when you finally get to that sort of stage? Well, I was actually thinking um, maybe because I'm turning 30 this year. I was thinking instead of celebrating my birthday now, which is in a couple of weeks away, I might just wait until sort of like around the end of summer and just have like have a, a big party for, for everyone that we work with and all our friends and sort of just be like, we did this, you know. <laughs> The last year and a half nearly got us, but it didn't, it didn't quite get us. Well, that sounds amazing, and uh, hopefully that happens sooner rather than later. Maria, 
loved having you on Deep in the Weeds. Thank you so much for your time. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.